0: In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and the man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The names of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now these are the generations of Perez, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, as you're being seated this morning, let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you have not hidden yourself from us, but indeed you have revealed yourself to us most excellently, most gloriously in the person and work of Jesus Christ, your Son. We ask, Lord, that we would, uh, by your Holy Spirit this morning, have ears to hear, eyes to see what you want to speak to us. Help us, Lord, we pray. Amen. Morning, Christ City Kids. I'm just going to change this so it's not so beard, roughly. Uh, My name is Jake. I'm part of the team here uh, at Christ City Kits. Uh, Fred, who's usually uh, the teaching uh, pastor here, he's actually just about to board a plane to Minnesota, where it's currently minus 25. Uh, So pray for Fred this week. Uh, Fred, I think he's a warm-blooded creature. Am I right, Marlene? Yeah. Uh, He's a warm-blooded creature, and so he might not make it back. Uh, uh, In addition, if you could just be praying for me throughout this time together, I, I might break out into a, a coughing fit, if that's the case. I'm just going to roll off the side of the stage. Uh, whoever's closest to the pulpit can come, finish up the sermon. Um, the notes are here, just so you know. I'm excited this morning. We're beginning our series in Ruth. I love Ruth. I love, 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 love Ruth. Ruth, if you're new to your Bibles, is on the left-hand side, if you can say it like that. Uh, we have the book of Judges before that, First uh, Samuel. Uh, just so you know, as we go through this series, I'd really encourage you to be reading through the book of Ruth. Just, it's four chapters, uh, really like you know, 10 minutes if you read sort of slowly and meticulously. Uh, it's it's just a great way to kind of start your day and just be reflecting on it. You know, what's what's happening here? Who are the characters? And especially asking, you know, where's God in this? The book of Ruth is really interesting because God is not explicitly mentioned in terms of his intervention ever in this book. It's really interesting. So what is Ruth about then? What is Ruth about? I want to say this morning that Ruth is a story of God's extraordinary purposes in an unlikely time behind unlikely people through unlikely events. Let me say that again. Ruth is the story of God's extraordinary purposes in an unlikely time behind unlikely people through unlikely events. You know, three generations removed from the book of Ruth, we find King David right in Psalm 13. Maybe you've read this this past week. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And more than a thousand years later, uh, the apostles will ask the resurrected Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? To which Jesus probably unsatisfactorily answers to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. How many of us in the midst of of tragedies, both big and small, global and deeply personal, have stopped to ponder how any of this, any of what's happening right now, lines up with a God who we believe to be sovereign, in control, Lord, not over just everything that is happening, but has happened and will happen. How many of us sit here this morning in the midst, maybe not necessarily of of tragedy, but of confusion? Your uh, straight path and your plan for life has taken a sharp turn uh, to the left. And you are legitimately perplexed as to how God might be in any of this. I think we can safely conclude this morning that to be a human who professes faith in God is to, at differing times and to differing degrees, ask, What? What are you doing, God? Where? Where are you, God? When? When will you move in power? When will you show your hand? How? How could you possibly ever use this for my good and your glory? Why? Why did you do it this way? Couldn't you do it a different way? Please? If you've ever asked one of these questions before, or perhaps you're asking one of them right now, I believe this little book of Ruth, we find sandwiched between Judges and 1 Samuel, will be of great encouragement to you. Because, as one commentator notes in his opening remarks, this is a book about the ways of God in human life. The, the tale touches the healingly in a tender spot. Mystified by the hiddenness of God, the absence of audible voices, visions, miracles in their own experience, they want to know God's presence in their daily life. Their unvoiced dream is that their work and play, family and friendships might more than just mark time before eternity comes. Isn't that true? Our unvoiced dream is that the everyday stuff of life matters. Surely, surely God is up to something. Thankfully, Ruth is the story of God's extraordinary purposes in an unlikely time behind unlikely people through unlikely events. If you have your Bibles, look with me at Ruth 1, verse 1. Ruth 1, verse 1. It begins this way. Let's begin by seeing just how unlikely the time of Ruth is for God to move in extraordinary ways. Ruth 1, verse 1 begins like this. In the days when the judges ruled. Now, there are certain phrases that if you just begin that way or just start your conversation this certain way, immediately you get a sense of, oh, I know what kind of time that we're in, right? Post 9-11, right? During Trump's presidency, right? Phrases that immediately clue you in, not just to a year, but to what the general population is, is thinking about at the time. What sort of things occupy the public imagination? So in beginning the booth, book of Ruth with, in the days when the judges ruled, what does the author of Ruth want us to recall? Well, first, and, and most obviously, we're given a period of time to the story unfolded. To situate uh, Ruth in, in, in Israel's timeline, if we can go back to the time of the, the patriarchs, right? We have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? This time of the patriarchs of, of the people of God, of Israel, right? W- which we could say ends with the death of Jacob. Uh, from there, we have Israel's enslavement. Oh, am I okay here, chair? I think it's the plug, Doug. I think it's okay. From there we have Israel's enslavement, right into, in, in Egypt, right? Eventual liberation from Egypt, a, a period we could call uh, the Exodus and wandering period, right? A period that essentially ends with the death of Moses. And, and from there, we have this time of, of military conquest. So patriarchs beginning up this way, patriarchs, uh, you know Exodus, wandering time, th- then a time of military conquest uh, led by Joshua. And from there we have this time when the judges ruled or the judges judged, or the leaders led. And it's after this approximately 300-year period when we'll meet the first kings of Israel, kings like Saul, David, Solomon. It was in this 300-year period when the rulers ruled, the judges judged, the leaders led, that for the most part, to, to speak frankly, that Israel went off the rails. Off the rails. And really, it all begins with Israel's failure uh, to drive out the Canaanite people from amongst them, right? Uh, in, In fact, instead of driving them out, Judges 1.28 tells us, Israel, you know, like, why get rid of these people? We could just enslave them and have a more economically viable solution. So Judges 1.28 tells us, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor. But then what does it say? But did not drive them out completely. And it's in this seemingly simple act of disobedience that leads to 300 years of headaches. A headache that could be summarized by the motto of Judges that appears twice in the book. In those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so what you read, as as you read through Judges, is this roller coaster ride of of, of decline and renewal. Decline and renewal. A a good judge will come, a good leader will come, and and, and lead the people in following Yahweh in obedience, and that leader will die, and and then a a bad judge will come and and lead them in in decline. And and it's not like it's just this, you know, sort of flat level, you know, decline, renewal, but it's actually a spiral downwards right it's a spiral downwards into further and further and further into sin and interestingly enough the sins that sent israel on their decline are the same sins i believe that in the people of god today uh, in cozying up to the Canaanites, the Israelites began participating uh, in idol worship, in idol worship. Uh, for the Canaanites, the, the primary gods that they had before them were Baal and Ashtar. Baal and, and Ashtar. They believed in this agricultural society that these gods were responsible responsible for either a good harvest or a bad harvest, Right? So to ensure a good harvest, uh, the Canaanites, and then joined by the Israelites, would perform what we call uh, imitative magic. Imitative magic. So they would go with their new Canaanite friends to the top of a high peak because the gods apparently have bad eyesight. And they would go to the the, the top of of this high peak and they would have orgies there. Right? And and, and they would, with one another, uh, replicate what they wanted to see happen on their lands. It's called imitative magic. See, instead of Israel trusting Yahweh for provision, uh, the Israelites were now presented, if we can say it like this, with a more hands-on option, right? A God they could manipulate. A God they could coerce, right? A God they could put in a box. We do this thing, you do this thing for us. In, In seeking to show how we're guilty of idolatry in much the same way as the Israelites all those years ago, Uh, One commentator put it this way. The lure today is not that of imitative magic to jog Baal's memory. It is rather the love of the vain belief that economic laws or monetarist policies will themselves create prosperity if only we bow down to them and worship them. See, the days when the judges ruled were days of great idol worship, days of great idol worship. But they were also days of great nominalism, right? The best part about Baal, the Canaanite evangelist would say, is, listen, he really only wants this one part of your life, right? You just go, you have this good time on top of a high mountain, and you come down, and really, no no other part of your life is affected, right? Right? Just do that one thing, that one time, and the rest of your life is yours, right? However you want to live it, it's up to you. Baal worshipers, even the most devout, are, are sort of like our contemporary uh, holiday Christians, aren't they, right? Go go to church once on, on Christmas, Easter, maybe the odd funeral, uh, maybe for a wedding, and outside of that, my time is my own, Right? God doesn't have authority to tell me what to do in this part of my life. No, it's just this sort of one religious sphere. If I want something, if I need something, well, then I'll come to him. Right? Their days of great nominalism. Right? Their bank accounts weren't affected by Baal worship. Their social lives weren't affected by Baal worship. They served a God who only wanted a sliver, just a piece But the God of Israel, the people knew, demanded that every part of their lives, every every aspect of their life come under his worship and his lordship. Uh, The vision of a life in its entirety in submission to Yahweh was clearly made known by God uh, through Moses to the people. Deuteronomy 6, 5-8, this famous passage reads like this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. Look at the totality of this, right? And when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And as you read through the Torah, you, you see every part of of, of their life, of, of the Yahweh worshiper, of the worshiper of the one true God, was to be affected by His Lordship by who he was, his kingship. You can understand then what's so tempting about Baal worship. I I get the rest of life myself. I can choose. These days when the judges ruled were filled with idolatry, nominalism, and so not unrelated, they were days of great evil, great confusion, great pain. We can picture the person in the days when the judges ruled, just like we do now, throwing their hands up in the air, saying, what are you doing, God? Where are you in the midst of this? And and to compound these questions of evil, it seems as if there is divine judgment taking place. Where are you, God? These were unlikely days for God to be doing anything extraordinary. But it's not just the era that was unlikely. Uh, The cast of people we have before us in Ruth 1, 1 1-5, upon further inspection, are actually quite an unlikely ensemble as well. Can we read, look with me at Ruth 1, 1 1-5, in its entirety again? I want to read that with you. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the names of his, uh, name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Picture, if you will, with me, a, a police lineup, right? Picture a police lineup with me. All of the suspects have been brought in, and I want us to, moving along the line, see you, see rather, who we have before us. The first person moving left to right is this person, this man, named Elimelech. Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, at first glance, seems like quite the pious individual, doesn't he, right? He was the head of a family of Ephrathites, this well-to-do familial line. But what what we might miss about Elimelech, the truth behind his pious name, the truth behind his family line, is the irony of his decision to leave Bethlehem And go, rather, to Moab. Elimelech, unlike you and I, we have to understand, as an Israelite, did not have a choice as to where he could live. He didn't have a choice in this matter. It's not like you and I where we can say, hey, I feel like the Lord is calling us to Atlanta or, I don't know, somewhere else in the world, right? He he didn't have that, that, that option. This is the land that God had promised his people. This is a land where if you were a worshipper of Yahweh, you, you were here. And it's within this land that the people of God were to be a blessing to other nations. But Elimelech, what does it say? He leaves. Because of famine in the land, he leaves. Notice this. And, and it can be so easy to miss this. Elimelech does not stay and mourn the sins of Israel. Elimelech does not stay and trust the provision of God. Elimelech leaves. The irony here is that he whose name means my God is king moves to a place and to a people where Baal is king. Elimelech, it seems, falls prey to the very nominalism that marked the time of the days when the judges ruled. Right? Surely God doesn't have a saying as to where I should live. Right? And so he moves. Elimelech takes his family. They move to Moab. And it's here that Elimelech dies, our text says, along with his sons, Malon and Chilion. I'm moving along the lineup if we can. Malon and Chilion, they didn't fare much better than their father. They also were not faithful to Yahweh. It says in verse 4 that these took Moabite wives. Again, at first glance, you know, what's the problem here? Deuteronomy 7.13, it tells Israel that as they enter the promised land, Moses says, you shall not intermarry with them, that is, the surrounding nations, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Hmm. Elimelech, Malon, Chilion, and now Naomi, right? The wife of Elimelech who does not immediately return to Bethlehem. Right, The wife of Elimelech, who does not repent upon the death of her husband. The wife of Elimelech, who continues to live in Moab for ten years. Elimelech, Malon, Chilion, Naomi, let's be clear here, these are all people of compromise. It's a family of compromise. Pragmatic opportunists, who, while they might have a rich religious pedigree, are no more followers of Yahweh than the Moabites they've surrounded themselves with. Which then, as we move down that police lineup, brings us to Ruth and Orpah. Now that's Orpah, not Oprah. I know some of you are like, oh, that, that's actually where her name got from, if you're ever wondering that. I read this in like a you know, tangential sort of you know study time, right? I'm on Wikipedia. Right? She was named Orpah, but then people couldn't pronounce that, so they called her Oprah. Fun fact. Ruth and Orpah, two Moabite wives, turned widows upon the death of their husbands, Malon and Chilion. Now if I can speak like an ancient Israelite for a second, Ruth the Moabite has no business being in the canon of God's people. uh, Like being in the canon of scripture for God's people. Ruth as a Moabite has no business featuring prominently in the story. Right? No business. Compared to the rich religious pedigree and heritage of Elimelech and his family, the history of the Moabites couldn't be more different, right? The Moabites, if, if you know this, came from Lot. Uh, the daughters of Lot got their dad drunk one time in Genesis nineteen, it says, and they slept with their dad, and, and, and from there came Moab the first Moabite. The Moabites are people with their origins in incest. Moabites worshipped a God they called Chamash, a God who had a particular taste for human sacrifice. On top of all this, Moabites had recently enslaved Israel, right? It's like as if the Exodus happened, and then some people were like, oh, let's just go back to Egypt, right? They seemed like nice people. They weren't that bad to us. In fact, Israel did say that. Judges uh, Judges 3.14 it tells us, and the people of Israel served Eglon the king of Moab 18 years. It's not until Ehud, that left-handed judge, maybe you remember that story, comes and and kills the the, the bigger uh, Eglon that they're uh, saved. Here we are, we can't miss this, here we are in, in our police lineup and staring back at us are these two Moabite women. Now, Two widowed Moabite women. Two widowed Moabite women alongside a family of compromise, a family of pragmatic opportunists. These were unlikely people for God to be doing anything extraordinary with. And finally, we need to see in these opening verses that not only was it an unlikely time, not only were these unlikely people but it would have seemed completely unlikely that God could do anything extraordinary through the events chronicled in these first five verses. And you have to imagine the situation that Naomi and her two daughters, daughter-in-laws, find themselves in, right? Widowed, without sons to provide and care for her, Naomi's whole world has come crashing down. For the last ten years, she's relied on these sons to care for her in the wake of her husband's death. Right, There is no social security net for Naomi, There is no uh, sort of, you know, church community to come around her at that time. Like, there is nothing for her. Her her life is destined to be a life of of hardship and eventual starvation. One commentator says, She was a stranger in a strange land, an aging single woman of no significance in a family-oriented culture with no one to care for or about her. Where can she go? What can she do? Why have you taken my sons away? Why have you taken my husband away? Oh, God. Now, we need not work hard to see how famine, the death of a spouse, the death of a child, can obscure our vision of God. We don't need to wonder why later in Ruth Naomi... Which means pleasant, lovely, delightful. We'll be asked to be called Mara, which means bitter. We don't need to work hard. Indeed, some of you this morning know exactly how Naomi felt. That feeling it isn't far away in an exotic land all those years ago. Well, it's here with you this morning. That grieving that morning that why what how when and yet the historical account of Ruth the story that we have before us reminds us and we can't miss this Christ city that God uses unlikely times unlikely people and unlikely events to accomplish his extraordinary purposes how do we know that? well the way that Ruth ends Ruth 4 18-22 Ruth 4:18 to22, uh, uh, when we first look at it seems quite sort of mundane. It's a genealogy, right? What's, what, what's actually here? I want to suggest to us that the Gospel hope for us this morning is found in the conclusion of this beautiful book. Ruth 4:18 to22 says this. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Spoiler alert here, if you you haven't read Ruth before, I apologize, but we're going to get there anyways. Uh, Ruth and Naomi go back to Bethlehem. Ruth gets given work by a godly man named Boaz. Boaz redeems Ruth and we'll see all that that means, all that that entails in the coming weeks. Ruth marries Boaz and they have this son named Obed. Obed is the grandfather of King David. Boaz is the great grandfather of King David. Let's just glory in the sovereign plans of the Lord for a second because that means this is true that Ruth the Moabite, who lived in the days when judges ruled, who stuck with a grieving and hopeless and destitute woman like Naomi, Ruth the Moabite is a great-grandmother of King David. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know if those what, those why, those when questions are, are, are indeed your questions this morning. But can we glory in a moment at the beautiful, sovereign plan of the Lord. Now, to realize the weight of Ruth, to recognize its importance in the canon of Scripture, we need, to, we need to pull back for a second. In this story, we find ourselves in a period of time similar to the Dark Ages. Israel, as we said, is in a downward spiral. Every step forward, there's five steps back. Things are not getting better. Things are getting worse. Things are getting worse. There was no godly king to lead the people of God. Instead, what does Judges tell us? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it's in this darkest moment. Like black, 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 dark. I can't see your hand in front of your face kind of moment when the whys and the whats and the hows are the loudest and it's in this moment that a widow like Naomi a Moabite woman named Ruth and a son of Salmon named Boaz are used in the sovereign plan of God to open the door just a crack just a little bit that the light might shine in the book of Ruth if we can think of it like this is a turning point Now, let's be clear. The time of kings in Israel is not this perfect time. Let's not idealize that time. It's not this perfect time. But as you know, one of these kings, son of Saul, King David, it's with one of these kings that God will make a promise, a promise that is very, very, very important for you and I. 2 Samuel 7, 12-16, it reads like this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build the house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The throne of David, the great-grandson of the Moabite Ruth, will be established forever because Jesus, the Son of God, the, the Messiah, the one who will save us, will sit on that throne. See, the author of Ruth begins with, in the days when the judges ruled in the days when those leaders led. And it ends with a genealogy leading to David, because as one commentator put it, it is as if the author wished us to know that there was another side to the life of the times when judges ruled. If he wanted to say, though all hope seems lost, there is coming one whose rule and reign will have no end, whose kingdom will reign eternal, whose justice will be administered swiftly and fairly, who will rid the world of its idolatry and its nominalism, one who will finally and completely answer the question, is God really for us? Does He really care? I was driving with my wife yesterday, and I don't want to give an impression that we have these spiritual conversations all the time, because they're really, we, we don't. But I was I was driving with her yesterday, and we were just reflecting on sort of, the world and the state of the world and and kings and rulers and I said to Maisie, Maisie, don't you just long for the time when when, when when all the hearts of the people will joyfully submit to the one who has been placed over us? Don't you just long for the time when we can look to our, our king and say, you know best. All your decisions are wise. See, the benefit of reading Ruth This side of Jesus is that while our questions remain, in Jesus we have comfort, we have hope, we have truth that those who lived in the days when judges ruled only longed for. So, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? I think it means that we should no longer accept at face value the most popular view of the age we inhabit. We should no longer regard the people around us as unimportant or unlikely. We should no longer see the events in our lives as random and unimportant occurrences. Listen, our age, as we've already seen, appears to be like the days when the judges ruled, doesn't it? Great idolatry, great nominalism, questions of evil persist even today. And I think it's frustrating for, for those of us who know Jesus when, when we see people who, who supposedly followed Christ and they talk about this age as if it's hopeless, right? As if this is all that it's, there is, right? As if, as Colossians 2 tells us, Jesus hasn't disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them up in shame by triumphing over them in Him. See, see the one accusation that, that Satan had against us, right, of our guiltiness, our shame, You're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not righteous enough. Colossians 2, 13-15 tells us that Jesus has triumphed over him. He no longer has that accusation against us. In dying on the cross with all our sins upon his shoulders, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. Jesus has taken our guilt. Jesus has taken our shame. Can we learn to see this age in light of Jesus? The people we encounter. Perhaps we encounter people like Ruth, right? People who come from, from, from right religious families, right? people who have, you know, sort of, you know, gone to church when, you know, they, they feel it's important. But but they've since departed. They've since left, right? People who have done that, you know, Christian thing for a little bit. And now, well, that was, that was back then. That was my experience then. I was reading this week a book called The Kingdom by a man named Emmanuel Carrier. He's this French author. And in the first part of the book, he chronicles sort of his coming to faith, then his departure from the faith. Is the gospel good news for people like Emmanuel? Do we see people like Ruth? Unlikely people. Our sworn enemies surely, surely the good news isn't for them. Now, we would never say that out loud, because that would be, you know, I would never say that out loud, right? That's not PC. But functionally in our hearts, in who we speak the gospel to, in who we open our homes to, we declare that. Do we believe Jesus when he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, The likelihood is that if you're here this morning, you're either a Ruth or a, sorry, or a Naomi. Right? Someone who was so far gone and got brought into uh, the kingdom of God by the grace of God, or someone who had lapsed in their faith. Maybe walked away for a season. And the grace of God called you back. We remember that in... Jesus' genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew, we find Jesus, yes, in the line of David, but also in the line of, of prostitutes, in the line of an ostracized version, and yes, in the line of a Moabite named Ruth. Think about how crazy this is. It's as if the Matthew wants to tell us, listen, this Gospel isn't just for you who have this rich religious pedigree unlikely people and can we learn to see them in light of Jesus how about the events of your life for most of us if the events of Ruth 1 1 to 5 had happened in our life we would do the natural thing we'd curl up in a ball we'd close the door and we would just say I'm just going to die now right I'm in a foreign land I I don't have any of my family here Uh, I have no access to food or water it's, it's hopeless let's just die Paul writes in Romans eight eighteen. I had asked that you would hear this this morning if you're in that season of season of struggle of, of of doubt of hardship. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That is the glory that will come with Jesus upon His return. This Jesus who has disarmed the rulers and authorities right taking away the only accusation that Satan had against us of our own guiltiness, our own shame, this Jesus who welcomes Moabites like Ruth, this Jesus who calls back the unfaithful like Naomi, this Jesus and the glory that will accompany him, believe it, Christ City, believe it, will dwarf the tragedy and suffering of this age. Brothers and sisters, we have to be people who see this age and our events and the people we encounter in light of who Jesus is. Because here's the thing. If we don't see them in light of Jesus, we'll we'll never go on mission. Right? Our age is hopeless. The events too difficult and the people too unlikely. Why should I bother? Ruth is the story of God's extraordinary purposes behind the unlikeliest of times in the lives of the unlikeliest of people and through the unlikeliest of events. And this is good news for us this morning. Would you stand with me as we prepare to respond? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit christcitychurch.ca. We invite
0: you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.